Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and this morning we are broadcasting live from downtown Dallas. This month, we welcome Robert Ward, Director of Global Forecasting for the Economist Intelligence Unit, who is calling from London for today's Global IQ program, International Business Hotspots, Forecasting Economic Growth Around the World. I'd like to welcome all Global IQ participants, including listeners from Canada, China, Micronesia, and of course, across the United States. And thank you for making today's audience one of our largest. A special thanks to World Affairs Council and Dallas Business Club members, Economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to check out previous Global IQ audiocast available on iTunes and the Council's website, dfwworld.org. We take questions live from listeners throughout the broadcast through the online forum. As you submit your questions, please be sure to let us know where you are in the world. And as a special benefit today, during the program, I will ask our audience three international business trivia questions. The first listener to submit the answer correctly will receive one of three generous prizes courtesy of our friends at The Economist. So please stay tuned for your chance to win. Global IQ is sponsored by Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Club Corps, the world leader in private clubs. This program would not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their expertise. And it's now my pleasure to introduce Robert Ward. Robert joined the EIU in 1997. In addition to analyzing key global economic trends and overseeing the global forecast in his current position, he is one of the EIU's leading Asia specialists with 20 years' experience covering the region. Robert is regularly called upon for commentary on the BBC, CNN, and CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us, Robert. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Next week, just a few days after the midterm elections in the United States, President Obama will be traveling to India with 250 U.S. business leaders. I understand it's one of the largest contingents of businessmen ever to travel with the president on a state visit. And that certainly underscores that India is a business hotspot and a leader in the emerging world. To start, I'd like to pose this question to you. The emerging world has experienced a a strong recovery since the post-Lehman collapse, while the developed world continues to struggle through the global economic recovery. Does this mean, in your view, that emerging markets, also known as EMs, are now decoupled from the developed world? Well, that's um, a very good question, and it, uh, there's a big debate in the um, in the economists' uh, community, if you like, um, about just how far uh, emerging markets are able to grow independently of the developed world. Um, in my view, uh, decoupling, uh, which basically means that the emerging markets are able to grow uh, without, uh, for example, the United States, Europe growing very fast, decoupling of the emerging world has yet to happen Um, in any meaningful sense. Um, Even if you think about the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, added together, they are still not as large as, for example, the United States private consumption. Uh, So all these countries added together are about the size of the U.S. consumer. So until they get more more bigger, I suppose you could say, uh, it's difficult to talk about uh, their being fully decoupled. Also, if you subscribe to uh, the world being globalized, uh, and increasingly so, it's very difficult to talk of uh, full decoupling because we are all connected with each other. But what I would say is that this crisis has really accelerated um, an existing trend, 
and that trend was the uh, move of the, uh, the world center of gravity from the developed world, so United States, Japan, uh, Europe, to the emerging world. So increasingly, um, over the next decade or so, I am expecting uh, the world to take more of its economic cues uh, from the emerging world than from the developed world. Uh, but decoupling so far, I think, uh, it's got quite a long way to go before we can say it's fully happened. Would you say that the recent economic financial crisis highlight maybe broader secular trends in the global economy, and, and what, what might those be? Um, I, I find, uh, obviously, the, the, the crisis has been food for thought for everybody. You know, what, what is it? What does it mean? Uh, is, it some, is it purely a credit thing, or is it something deep, more structural? And I'm finding increasingly I'm coming to the view that uh, this is um, not just a credit crisis. It's, it's the end of, perhaps on the one hand, of uh, maybe 60 years of uh, assumptions about, uh, I suppose, the welfare state, about income, about growth in the developed world I'm talking about here. Um, that has really come to an end. All over the developed world, we have demographic problems, aging, shrinking populations, all of that sort of thing. Um, and that has coincided, these structural changes have coincided with, obviously, excesses of credit um, in, in the Western banks. That's on the one hand. On the, on the other hand, we have, as I've just been outlining, uh, the acceleration of these, this existing trend, so to the uh, emerging world. And these are big, big developments. And I think the best way to think about what's happening in the volatility uh, that, this is, that we're experiencing is really these trends uh, working their way through. Um, and I see this as being a multi-year process. I don't think we can really talk about everything being over ne next year. Uh, we're going to be bumping along, uh, some, some years having good years in the developed world, some years not. Uh, but it's a long process. Um, and I think, uh, just give you a couple of indications of how we think the world will be different in 2020, for example. Uh, by 2020, China will be the largest economy in the world. Not surprising, perhaps, there's one and a half billion people there. Uh, US will be number two. Uh, but in the top 10, a half of the top 10 will be from the uh, emerging world. Uh, and as a coda to that, uh, we talk about emerging markets, but I think by 2020, as part of this, these big secular trends, uh, the emerging markets, we'll be talking about them as the establishment. Uh, so emerging markets will be, a, will be something very much of the past. So these countries will really have arrived and be arriving over the next decade. You know, I want to move to hot spots in a few minutes, but already we received a question from Bill in Dallas, and uh, saying, "Does the West have any leverage to force China to increase their artificially low exchange rate?" Um, and, and indeed, um, I guess it was on September 27, uh, Brazil's finance minister Guido Mantegas created quite a bit of controversy, saying that an international currency war had already broken out. So maybe you could comment, has the currency war broken out, and then focus uh, on Bill's question. Well, I mean, again, this is uh, absolutely the core of, um, of economic, what we're watching at the moment. Uh, it, it is something I think we should all take very, very seriously. Um, just to answer the question first, and I'll, then I'll go on to the currency wars, if I may. Um, yes, the, the U.S. does have leverage. Um, I don't subscribe to the, the view by any means that China has the, the world uh, by the throat. Uh, the U.S. and China have a highly symbiotic uh, relationship. Uh, 
If you're being cynical, you could say it's akin to the relationship between a drug dealer and a drug addict. Um, not particularly pleasant, but both countries need each other badly, um, the US and, 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 and China. Now, China um, threatens perhaps to, to offload its large holdings of US treasuries. Impossible to do, in my view, largely because to do so would be to upset the treasury market, to, to force pre uh, treasury uh, prices down, and to destroy their own wealth. So they're stuck in this, um, in this relationship with the United States, whether they like it or not, and it's in their interests uh, to keep it uh, uh, very stable. Uh, in my view, the, uh, I think that there is a case to be made, uh, I think the questioner is, is suggesting this, that China needs to uh, adjust its exchange rate. Um, it's growing quickly. Um, clearly, it's attractive to, uh, for people to invest in, and this, this uh, means that uh, the currency should go up. Um, I think they will. Um, I think they're doing it very slowly because the, the Chinese do nothing uh, very quickly unless they absolutely have to. I think on the one hand they're looking at Japan in the 1990s when, they, when, they, when the yen uh, was uh, upwardly revalued very, very abruptly uh, and that's just, uh, that cited as one of the reasons for their falling into deflation. I think they will do it. They will upward revalue slowly. Um, and they have to do this because there's only one way that they can um, boost domestic demand, uh, and that is by having an open capital account, um, by which I mean they need to uh, reform their financial sector, uh, deepen credit markets, and so on. And as a prerequisite to that, you do need an open capital account. But it will be slow, and there'll be a lot of theatre around uh, ab about this particular exchange rate, particularly when you have elections, for example, in the United States, or as you do now, or in China, when you have the, the run-up to the transition of power uh, from the current leadership to the new one, which, which, uh, which is installed in 2012. There was a very interesting piece that was in The Economist on October 9th, and it was in the section Economics Focus, Flood Barriers. And I think it suggested that there's, as you said, a lot of theater about the currency issues with China, but that you could also look at South Korea and Taiwan that have been meddling in their currency markets. I wonder if you could touch for a minute about uh, maybe this overemphasis on, on China and what is occurring in some of the other countries. Unfortunately, um, as, you, as you're suggesting, the, there is some overemphasis here. Um, unfortunately, China is so central to everything now that everybody else pretty much takes their cue uh, from what's going on in China. Uh, clearly, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, Japan, um, they're, all, they're all desperate to export. They're all looking at each other's currencies, and they're all trying to competitively devalue. Um, unfortunately, not, not everyone can devalue at the same time. Currencies are all relative, so something has to go up. Um, and we've seen the yen rising, of course, uh, to rates that really are quite crippling uh, for a country already in deflation. And, of course, we've seen the euro rising because that's free-floating as well. So the pressure has come out in the yen and the euro, uh, which does neither of these countries um, any good. Um, I am looking at this currency issue with, with some degree of concern because I do think it's part of this um, uh, destabilizing uh, impact from the emergence of China um, as a major world power on the one hand, um, issues within the United States with the need to combat deflation and so on on the other hand. So you have the world's two biggest uh, countries uh, trying to do opposite things, and that is, that is destabilizing. Plus we have the politics, as I mentioned earlier. So we're not forecasting a fully-blown currency war by any means, but uh, the risks of something going wrong, I think, have risen. And Secretary Clinton will be in China, I guess, later later this week. And then also there's early November, the G20 meeting in, in Seoul. 
Did you, you see uh, an agreement coming out of the G20 meeting on, on the currency issue or, or not? No, uh, maybe I sound sort of cynical on this, but um, I really don't. Uh, and one of the reasons is, you know, the United States is flirting with uh, deflation. Uh, this, is a, this is a risk. It's not a fact yet. You've got disinflation at the moment, but inflationary pressures are broadly very low. Um, that is dreadful for an economy. It's, it's like having um, some, some dreadful sickness, as Japan has shown. So the Fed is absolutely right, in my view, to be taking a very proactive uh, stance on this. And, of course, if it does that, then that means that the dollar is uh, potentially, um, uh, I suppose, very volatile or certainly weaker. And the Chinese, on the other hand, they're desperate not to, uh, to, lose, competitive, so, to lose competitiveness, and so they don't want to revalue up uh, quickly. So... While you've got these two big, big countries not wanting to move, I think it's very, very difficult to get any uh, a, a lasting agreement, despite any lip service that, that may be paid during the uh, during the meetings. I remember in your special report, the Economist special report, the big tilt. Uh, one of the large concerns was uh, fear of protectionism, and I just wonder what your thoughts are in, in light of uh, a Congress that will be look quite different next year than the one that we have now. Um, and there'll probably be the so-called Tea Partiers and maybe an, an odd alliance with uh, some strong uh, uh, folks in, backed by, by labor unions. Do you see a, a, an increased threat of protectionism, or, or will it not go beyond rhetoric? Um, I think one has to split out uh, the theater, the rhetoric on the one hand, and um, the real concerns on the other hand. Um, I'm... Uh, clearly, the, the risks have risen. I think, because, partly because the damage from the, the economic shock has been so uh, has been so deep. Uh, but I'm encouraged, in a sense, by the fact that so many of the the disagreements so far um, have been always been referred to multilateral uh, organisations, WTO, uh, for example. Um, and I think that's encouraging that people, while the theatre is there, they they are taking a sort of relatively responsible view. Uh, with regard to trying to sort out um, their differences. Now, for the United States, um, I understand, of course, that it's, very, um, it's a very easy target uh, to, to go protectionist, but actually, if you do that, and that applies pretty much everywhere in Europe as well, if anyone does that, the people that get hurt are the ordinary consumers, and of course, they're, because they're the goods that they need to buy, whether it's uh, cheap CD players or, 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 or clothes or whatever, suddenly have to start paying more for those. So if you take protectionism to its logical extent, actually I think it in the long term could become a vote loser. Um, and of course the, all the US companies and European companies that are based in these countries would also lose out as well, as would shareholders and so on down the chain. So um, it's something people, the politicians should be very careful of. Uh, our, our, our baseline forecast is you have at the moment what we might call protectionism light, uh, where you have a lot of rhetoric, a lot of theatre, um, some sort of small protectionism measures at the, on the sidelines, but actually the globalization process uh, remains intact um, and, and moves forward. So uh, that's what we're expecting in our, in our central scenario. We will move to hot spots, but one more question from Dwayne, who says, how do you see global inflation over the next few years? How will it impact the emerging markets, both in equities and fixed income? Uh, inflation is a, is a tale, global inflation at the moment is a tale of two, two halves. Um, on the, in the developed world, uh, there really isn't that much inflationary pressure. We talked about the United States experiencing 
um, disinflation, uh, Western Europe as well, um, a lot of stresses there, strong euro, weak economies, that's driving inflation down there. Uh, the UK is a bit different. We've got uh, temporary inflation, I believe, but that, again, I think will come down. Japan, of course, already in, in deflation. In the emerging world, however, you have uh, basically the emerging world uh, getting the benefit in many respects of QE in the developed world, so that when the Fed uh, prints money and it will print more um, in, in the after the next meeting, that money leaks out. It's leaking into asset prices in um, in places like uh, India, Middle East, all sorts of other places as well. So uh, the emerging world is is sort of feeling the um, the winds, if you like, from uh, from the emergency policy measures that are being taken um, in the developed world. Of equities and fixed income, uh, it, it, I think it's very difficult to make an exact call. If you're looking at the emerging markets, I think one easy assumption to make, and it seems, it's certainly been right so far, is that if you've got more QE, in it, that is good for the emerging world because it's, it's on, on, in, in the round is growing more quickly than the developed world, good for, good for equities. Um, if you've got more QE, that could also suggest that the... Um, the monetary authorities are less uh, less than encouraged by what's going on at home in the developed world, so that will be probably good in a sense for uh, over the short term anyway for, for for a lot of government bonds. Now, how you play that out over the long term, I think depends, particularly in bonds, depends on how you view the inflation and deflation debate. If you are an inflationist, you believe all this money that's being printed is going to lead to massive Weimar Republic-style inflation. Uh, then you'd get out of bonds uh, over the longer term. But if you're a deflationist, and I think I belong in that camp, uh, then uh, certainly government bonds would be uh, something to hold uh, for the uh, over the longer term as well. Um, I think deflation is the issue in the developed world, and uh, that will remain on central banks' radars very much over the next couple of years. Uh, we're now ready to uh, do our first prize, our first trivia question, and this is for a one-year subscription to The Economist. To say emerging markets are on fire is an understatement. Which of the following countries posted top market returns on investment of 114% for 2009? And the choices are Brazil, Indonesia, or Peru. Be the first person to send in the correct answer, and you'll win a one-year subscription to The Economist. Now let's move to the topic, really, of today's discussion, and that is hotspots. Um, give, give us your thoughts. Where, where should people be focusing their investments now? Well, I think, you know, you have, if, you, if we're right, and the developed world is going to be growing slowly over the next few years, then really that pretty much, unless you're into um, making products for the old or, or, or medical products or, or looking to dispose of toxic waste, that sort of thing in the, in the developed world, if you're not into those, I, I think you have to look into the emerging world. And here the story, I think, is, is really quite exciting indeed. Um, this, for example, is the first uh, recession that we've really been led out of uh, by the emerging world. That's because China has been largely so um, aggressive with its, uh, with its fiscal stimulus. Uh, so, as I said the, at the beginning of this, we are in a sort of transition towards the emerging world becoming the, the, the establishment. Um, if you're looking at the emerging uh, world, you, clearly you have to look at the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Um, and at the moment, um, China is, for me, by far the most extraordinary thing that's happening on the planet. Uh, it is the story of the next 10 years. Um, I tell all my clients, if they haven't been to China, they must go. And I say that to all the listeners today. 
Go to China if you haven't been, because that's the only way to understand uh, the, the, the magnitude of, of what's happening um, in that country. It is quite extraordinary. Um, Brazil is very exciting. Uh, of course, we've got World Cup, we've got Olympics, uh, they've got oil, they've got uh, motor industry, they've got ag agro-industrial industry, they're quite diversified as well. I, I wonder somehow, though, whether Brazil's been slightly overhyped. Uh, too much excitement about Brazil when there's so many problems there still to be solved, whether it's education, gap between rich and poor, tax reform, also infrastructure, of course, as, as, as well. Um, Russia... If you, look, I mean, the rest of Eastern Europe is looking pretty, pretty poorly at the moment, but Russia is dominates by a long, long way. Uh, desperately awful population uh, profile, with the population shrinking at a rate of hundreds of thousands a year. Uh, but of course, it's got uh, commodities, um, and that will, uh, well, that will sort Russia, I think, uh, for the rest of um, probably the rest of my lifetime. Uh, I don't expect it really to get much into uh, high value added manufacturing, which I think is a shame. Um, and then the most exciting one of all over the long term, in my view, is India. You mentioned India at the very beginning. I think India has, over the long term, better prospects than, than, than China does. I think India is perhaps going to be one of the, the most exciting stories. It's a long term story. You go to India today and you'll think, why am I saying that? The infrastructure is horrible. Uh, so many problems. But I think this is a story maybe from 2020 or 2030 over the next 20 or 30 years. Very exciting. Um, and one of the good things about India, which uh, uh, China does not have, uh, Russia certainly doesn't have, that is demography. India has a wonderful demography, very, very young population, and that is fantastic for growth uh, in a very, very broad sense. Let me ask you this, though, on in India, and in fact, it flows into a question that Benedict asked. He says, can you compare India's growth in comparison to China, particularly in the area of infrastructure? Um, I was recently in India, and, you know, you really do see just an incredible uh, variance in uh, grand buildings and, and, and lots of progress, and yet very difficult roads and transportation and, and still uh, great poverty. Absolutely, and, if you, and the comparison with China is a very good one, particularly as uh, over the past few years, India has been bracketed uh, with China in, in, in the BRICS. Um, if you go to China, you'll see that China's, some of China's infrastructure is actually first world, better than we've, a lot of the stuff we've got in the United Kingdom, perhaps better than you've got in the United States as well. Airports, stations, I mean, exceptionally good. They've, their build-out has been extraordinary. India has nowhere near anything um, as good as, as, as China has. Uh, but to skeptics, I would say, um, I uh, sort of a story um, about my life. I, I remember standing on in Shanghai on the on the river on the Bunt, uh, looking over at what now is Pudong in 1990, and there were a couple of cows there, maybe a old peasant uh, sowing something. There was nothing there, and if you'd said 20 years uh, from 1990 that China would actually be at the world's top table. Uh, boasting world-class infrastructure and challenging the United States for supremacy, global supremacy, I would have thought you were mad. Um, but that's a very good um, example of just when, some, when the momentum is right for one of these big emerging markets, how much they can achieve uh, in really a very short space of time. And I agree with you that India at the moment is nowhere near uh, where it needs to be. Um, if it can sort its infrastructure out, and that's a great opportunity for foreign firms to, to get in there and do that, I believe that India can actually grow more quickly uh, than China over the longer term. And what is cited at the moment as a negative for India, but I actually think is a positive one, uh, is its political structure. 
Uh, China is quite brittle. Um, the, the, the Communist Party uh, has lost its ideology. Um, it's struggling to, to contain the developments within the country. Um, in India's uh, political system, you can get rid of the government through every, every, so, uh, every five or so years uh, through an election. Uh, in China, you can't. And I think that will stand uh, India in, long, in the long term in, in much better stead. So I, I'm, I'm a great fan of India over the long term, despite what it looks like at the moment. Let me just uh, congratulate Rob Zerishka. He uh, answered trivia question number one correctly. The answer was Peru. That's the country that uh, posted the top market return on investment of 114% for 2009. Robert, almost everyone said Brazil, but uh, Rob got it correctly saying Peru. Um, wanted to uh, ask you as, as well to maybe go a little bit farther into what the change in government uh, in Brazil might mean. Well, it, it all depends on uh, how the government decides, how vigorous the government decides to tackle the reforms I mentioned uh, a while ago. Uh, Brazil is the, the world's darling at the moment. We all love it. I mean, it's a fantastic country, great people, um, great scenery. Um, it, it's got everything. It's a, it's a sort of emerging market paradise. Um, my concern is it's, it's being overloved at the moment, and people are really quite blind. Uh, to the uh, to the real issues that that are there, and we mentioned infrastructure with India, for example. Well, similar, you could say that about Brazil. Um, Sao Paulo Airport is, is is pretty close to hell on earth, as far as uh, many travellers are are concerned. I'm sure lots of opportunity there, of course, for the Brazilians to to build out and so to 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 really generate growth. Um, the good uh, results that Brazil has been notching up over the past few years, that is a growth a world that is leverage play on global growth. Um, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't kid ourselves that this is largely domestically driven. Um, it, and over the last sort of year or so, uh, China, uh, Brazil will, I think, record this year one of its fastest growth rates ever. Um, that is largely thanks to China and its um, huge fiscal stimulus, stimulus package and the demand for mat raw materials and commodities that, that Brazil produces. And so that obviously has been very good for the government. And uh, you know, and I, I acknowledge that the government is. Uh, given Brazil over the past 10 years or so, the last few governments have given it macroeconomic stability, um, which has served it well over the last over the uh, last couple of years during the crisis. But we mustn't lose track, I think, of how much still needs to be done. Now, if Brazil is to ensure um, a long period of self-sustaining growth that's domestically driven, um, then these reforms really do need to be uh, do need to be implemented. Uh, Brazil needs to really. Um, keep diversifying its industrial base. Commodities are fine; they're good for for, for uh, driving growth. But you don't want to be uh, too dependent on commodities because they are so volatile. So I'd like to see the new government implementing reforms. But of course, it's very difficult because some of them will be very painful, uh, and growth is is very good. So maybe the 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 rationale is uh, is quite for reforms is difficult to explain to people. But uh, this would be what I'd be looking for uh, from the new government: more uh, economic reforms. Uh, Robert, one of our listeners from Canada, Zulfi, uh, asked us just to define one more time. You mentioned that by 2020, five of the ten largest economies would be from what we call the emerging economies today. Uh, he says, I guess that besides China, there'll be India and Brazil. Uh, what other countries would, would be the other two? Uh, we've got China. I think uh, my, my memory serves me right. We've got the United States, uh, sorry, China at the top, then the United States, then India, uh, then we've got Japan, um, and then I think uh, Germany would come in there. 
uh, and I think then we've got uh, I I grant I. Um, I collectively uh, put in ASEAN because uh, ASEAN is, is huge uh, and it clearly has Indonesia in it as well. So if you look at ASEAN as a group, uh, that would be in there as well. Uh, I think in the top five even for ASEAN. Uh, then you'd have Russia in there too. Uh, Russia is, uh, is, is a large economy and has uh, really done very well over the past, during the boom. You'd also have Mexico in there too. Uh, the UK, I think, just falls out of the top ten if you put uh, if you put ASEAN in there, which is which is rather sad. So you'd have all the BRICS in there, uh, coupled with ASEAN and uh, and Mexico. And before we move to some of the dark horses, um, let me ask you to. And, and this is a very interesting question from David, and it also flows from something that that I read uh, earlier this year. Uh, Nobel. Prize economist Robert Fogel projected that China's economy would grow by about 11% annually for more than 30 years. And then David says, you mentioned that this is a time of questioning basic assumptions of 60 years. Is one of these assumptions the doctrine that democratic governments and capitalism gives the best results? Oh, that's a profound question, isn't it, Gosh. Um, uh, well, a very good question as well, because... Uh, you know, China suggests that perhaps that that that, that isn't the case. Um, I, my my position would be that uh, you you can um, give direction to an economy as an autocratic government. Uh, you can get growth, uh, you know, pretty pretty uh, brisk growth rates um, if you over a number of years. Uh, but then, as as wealth rises and aspirations change, then it becomes more difficult to do that and to to remain uh, autocratic. So. The Chinese government now is, is clearly uh, facing these issues. There's something like 90,000 disturbances every year in China, and they range from big ones to little ones, people sort of fighting each other in crowds, fighting the police and what have you. There's a lot of tension in China, partly because, you know, people are getting richer, they're getting more middle class, they're getting more aspirations, they don't want the government dictating to them, they're fed up with corruption, uh, all sorts of uh, issues like that. So. Um, I think it's very difficult for autocratic governments to uh, to maintain control over the long term. Uh, even over the short term, they will get uh, their, you know they clearly have ability to to, to mobilise resources uh, very quickly uh, and and to to sustain growth. Um, I would take issue with the the view that China can grow at that rate uh, for that long. Uh, we're not expecting that by any means. Uh, we're expecting China to actually by 2020. To be slowing to round about five five percent, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. Um, China has uh, great demographic problems. Um, it's not an issue at the moment, uh, but it will increasingly become so. They, of course, the one-child policy has left the sex ratio highly skewed. So you have, I think, it's about 40 million men in China who have uh, no prospect of getting a, a local bride. Uh, so they're having to import them from uh, women from Philippines and Vietnam and, and so on. So there's problems uh, with the skewed sex ratio. Uh, the one-child policy also means that uh, the uh, China is becoming old. Uh, and the, one of the, the big questions here is: Will China become old before it gets rich, or will it become old while it's still largely poor? Uh, so, given that demographic profile, um, I would say it's actually quite difficult for China to grow at that rate um, over the long term. So we are expecting China to be slowing. Uh, so to quite a lot by the end of this decade. Uh, not, not, I mean, that's not a disaster, of course. Uh, that's because China's maturing, and mature economies do grow more slowly. Uh, that's just how, it, how, how the world is. I think if it was growing by that rate uh, for that length of time, it might be rather worrying. Mm -hmm. 
you know, this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about more what you do with the Economist Intelligence Unit. Um, and I know that uh, we want to encourage our listeners to become subscribers to the Global Forecasting Service. Uh, I've had the privilege of looking at a number of your reports, and it really is just a top-notch notch analysis um, and very timely. Could you, could you take a, a few minutes to t tell us uh, really about what, what, what is the function, how can someone receive these reports, and uh, what you do exactly um, at the EIU? Well, we at the Economist Intelligence Unit, we're a sister company of The Economist uh, magazine, which I'm sure everybody is very, very familiar with. Uh, so we, we sit within The Economist group um, as, a, as a sister company. There are various other companies within the group, but we're the sort of, uh, uh, you might call the B2B uh, side of uh, the Economist Group, while the magazine is something you read for fun as a B to C, uh, our material is something you read because you have to to make strategic decisions. <laughs> so uh, B, B to B, um, you can't uh, you have you can't get our the Economist Intelligence Unit's material in the shops. You have to subscribe or, or go onto the website as uh, as uh, you indicated at www.eiu.com. Uh, we are about 60 years old. Uh, we were founded after the Second World War uh, when it was realized that uh, we really, the world really needed uh, good data on um, global economies. Uh, previous to that, the, the, the science of economics was very, very, uh, was quite a relatively young one in many senses. Uh, so we founded 60 years ago, just over 60 years ago. Uh, we are one of the world's leading suppliers of uh, business information, so uh, forecasts on the economy, on politics, uh, on policy. Uh, we cover round about, uh, I think, just over 200 countries, and that does include uh, North Korea. Uh, we do have forecasts for North Korea, if anyone's interested. Uh, very difficult to produce, obviously, but we do cover uh, most of the world, so just over 200 countries. Uh, and as I said, it's political, uh, economic, and uh, policy uh, forecasting. We have a, a range of other um, activities within the Economic Economist Intelligence Unit, but you can see those uh, if you go to the website, uh, eiu.com, as I indicated. Uh, and we have uh, just launched, actually, and you, you did allude, allude to this, uh, the Global Forecasting Service. Uh, the, the URL, I just had a senior moment and it's eluded me, unfortunately, I've forgotten what it is. But if you do uh, EIU and Global Forecasting Service, uh, you will get to it. And it is a free uh, monthly global forecast uh, from, the, uh, from the EIU, well worth signing up for. Um, you get the full region-by-region uh, uh, region region, uh, forecast uh, from us. And it's a, it is free, uh, and I think it's excellent. So do, do, do take a while to sign up for that. Now, Robert, can people buy individual reports for countries, or do you subscribe on an annual basis? You, you can buy individual reports, or you can subscribe uh, on an annual basis uh, to individual countries or the whole, the full set, uh, just, just as you want. We, we try to tailor um, what our offerings to what, to, to what clients want. As I say, we have 200 countries, so we can really cover uh, most, uh, most bases. We also do some industry forecasts as well, automotive, uh, telecoms and technology, financial services, and, and, and so on. So uh, you can buy it as in, in, the, in the volume that you like. Do you share staff with The Economist newspaper, the magazine, or are you staffed completely separately? Uh, we have uh, a very good relations with The uh, with Economist uh, magazine, and uh, we often work together in conferences, and we talk to each other, and we have uh, 
uh, a good uh, exchange of views. Um, the Economist uh, magazine itself likes to maintain uh, a, a sort of Chinese wall, if you like, be between us uh, and them. They like to be fully, uh, utterly independent, so they use some of our stuff and they use uh, some of the material from other people as well. Uh, but we are, as I said, a sister company, so we, uh, we, do, we, we share the same values uh, in terms of how we look at the world. That's, one of the, I think, one of the key uh, factors, our key um, selling points, if you like. Um, and we are, of course, uh, fully independent, uh, which I think is very important uh, thing to note as well uh, in our views. Good. And, and let me just remind everyone to receive the free forecasting service. That's eiu.com forward slash GFS. Uh, before we talk about some countries that may not be on everybody's radar, let's do trivia question number two to receive the 2011 Economist Wall Calendar. India's defense spending rarely attracts investors' attention. Which American company is selling the country $2.1 billion worth of maritime patrol aircraft? Is it Bell, Bell Helicopter, Boeing, or Lockheed? And uh, just be the first person to send in the correct answer, and you'll receive the 2011 Economist Wall Calendar. Robert, what are, the, what are the dark horses? We've talked about the BRICS, but what are some countries that may not be on everybody's radar that you should be looking at? Well, a lot of we've talked about the BRICS, as you said, and uh, a lot of our clients, they say, you know, we know about the BRICS. Uh, we know them. We've done them to death. Uh, what's interesting on, in terms of, of Tier 2 uh, economies? Uh, and last year, I was, I was just having a think about, uh, uh, for some clients, a presentation, uh, what are really interesting Tier 2 economies. And I wrote some countries down, and they made a word. Uh, and it was my sort of attempt to succeed the BRICS, if you like. And uh, the word was civets. Uh, that's C-I-V-E-T-S. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think it's going to take off like the uh, BRICS did, because no one knows what a civet is. Uh, so let me... Well, more know now. <laughs> I hope we do. And just double make, make the most triple sure, I'll tell everybody what a civet is. It is a cat, a wild cat, uh, that lives actually, I think it's found in each of the countries that, uh, that, I, that I selected. So it's, uh, it's nice and symbolic. Unfortunately, some people in Asia pointed out to me, this is a, also an animal that was a vector for SARS. So it's, got a bit of, it's not got an entirely good reputation. But I'll put everybody out of their misery and, and tell them what the, the civets are. Uh, the C is Colombia, uh, I is Indonesia, V is Vietnam, E is Egypt, T is Turkey, and S is South Africa. And I don't know whether listeners are surprised by that, that mix or, or what, but uh, these are countries that I think are, are, are particularly interesting uh, in terms of Tier 2 uh, emerging uh, markets. Maybe you could go into a little bit of detail about how you chose these. Are there any themes that link these countries uh, in particular? And I'm also interested that, that a few countries who are not included, uh, and, and one is, is, is Nigeria, because we hear uh, off and on that Nigeria is a country that perhaps is positioned to overtake South Africa at, at, some, at some point. Whenever, yeah, absolutely. Whenever I mention the civets, somebody always says, why didn't you choose uh, Nigeria? Why didn't you choose uh, Iran? Uh, so there's lots of contenders, so I, I accept that this is an imperfect list of, uh, of potentials. But I'll just explain for you, for the listeners, the, um, the rationale. It's a very loose rationale in many respects. One of them is having a big population. I wanted over 50 million or thereabouts, and they all uh, fulfilled that criteria. Uh, another um, one was I wanted economies with uh, relatively diversified 
uh, industrial base, and they all broadly do that. Maybe the exceptions Indonesia, which is still very um, uh, commodities based, but uh, it's so big that it really has to go into any uh, tier two uh, list. 243 million people, for example. Um, the other criteria, and this is quite an important one, was uh, the degree of resilience to the um, to the uh, emerge to the economic shock of the past couple of years. And all of these countries actually fared relatively well um, over the um, last over the last couple of years. Whether that's because they are um, very highly linked into bits of the world that are doing relatively well. Uh, whether it's because, like Brazil, we're talking about they've achieved macroeconomic stability through reforms over the past few years, uh, but they've all um, really weathered the storm um, rel relatively, uh, relatively well. Um, I think uh, of the civets, uh, the one I like particularly, uh, and I think it's a very exciting story, potentially, is Turkey. I think Turkey is... Uh, Everything um, has so much going for it in the sense it has a huge population growing. It's a young population. Uh, it's an aspirational population. Unlike bits of Eastern Europe, for example, they weren't uh, uh, the, the, the labour force wasn't dulled by communism. So they're very entrepreneurial as well. Uh, very highly active in terms of education, upgrading their skill set. Perfectly located, of course, in terms of geogra geography. Uh, right between the Middle East, Africa, and and Europe, of course. So, obviously, political issues there potentially, um, and it's not necessarily going to be the smoothest path. Uh, but it's, uh, I think, Turkey is uh, very, very interesting as well. Um, Colombia as well. I think what they've done um, achieving peace uh, or bringing relative peace to Colombia has been quite extraordinary. Uh, we were there um, uh, about a year ago, and really the message on the, on the street was uh, we can finally, from Colombians, we can finally go out and spend and, and live normal lives. So the, the pent-up demand there is, I believe, uh, a pretty, pretty good. Um, Egypt, of course, huge population, 80 million, growing fast. Quite poor still, uh, but it's got light manufacturing and commodities and a bit of tourism and what have you as well. Uh, South Africa is um, depends largely on China, of course, because of commodities, but uh, is, well, is relatively well run, has good judiciary, good banking systems, a relatively sophisticated economy, um, and Vietnam, nearly 90 million as well, and growing very quickly, and again, relative, relatively diversified between manufacturing and, and commodities. Uh, you mentioned Nigeria, and as I said at the beginning, this is always the country that everybody says, why haven't you included it? 150 million people growing quickly, etc., um, for me, however, it wasn't diverse enough. It was uh, largely an oil story, a uh, commodities story, and um, I think that's not necessarily the best way to go for countries. If they can diversify, which I think they, all commodities producers need to do to get out of commodities, um, that would be a good thing, but they're, they're still too dependent on oil from my point of view, although I do accept that uh, Nigeria is one of the exciting stories uh, in Africa. And, and certainly one to watch, but not a civet, I'm afraid. Yeah, you know, I want to put in a plug for our next Global IQ. On uh, November 8th, we'll be focusing on Turkey, and of course, The Economist magazine had a special report on Turkey uh, last week. Hmm. You know, I, I, I understand why you selected most of these countries, but Egypt surprises me because uh, of perhaps some upcoming political instability. Egypt surprises everybody, and it's the sort of dark horse on the radar. Um, as I said, 84, 85 million people. Uh, they've done, <clears throat> over the past few years, a young population, of course, which um, 
for in the developed world is a rare thing. So you know, young population, wherever it is, is is attractive in my view for for, for investment, corporates, and what have you. Um, They've achieved macroeconomic stability. They've done reforms. As I said, they're relatively diversified in terms of their industrial base. You mentioned the politics. Absolutely. Um, this is something we are watching. Um, and I think uh, it, it, it is. Um, we have the transition coming, and there is all sorts of issues with corporate governance and uh, corruption and, and so on. Um, but do look at it, uh, because it is well-cited. It is attracting a lot of investment from the Middle East. Uh, partly because of this um, attractive population. It is poor. Uh, GDP per head uh, is about, at PPP, is at just about $6,000, uh, and that compares to somewhere like Turkey, which is about $12,500, or Colombia, which is $9,000. Uh, so it is poor, and uh, but there's a lot of scope for catch-up uh, and a lot of scope for really quite rapid growth um, over the next few years. So I think that's what e Egypt is definitely one to watch. Uh, there are other countries, actually, along the in North Africa, Algeria as well, uh, Morocco, uh, also uh, very um, interesting uh, to, uh, to overseas investors, uh, not just from the Middle East, but also in, from Europe and, and the United States. A uh, big population, of course, in, in Algeria uh, makes it attractive too, as well as its gas. Mm -hmm. and, and, and speaking of some other countries, Kathy asks uh, you to give your views on Dubai and Abu Dhabi going forward. Well, we were there a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the mood in Dubai is obviously, as one would expect, a little bit subdued. Uh, um, they're having to, to redefine their relations within the UAE. Um, big plans, as always, in, in, in Dubai. Uh, another airport going to be built. Uh, big plans to, to really make um, the, re the UAE, uh, Dubai in particular, into a, a sort of mega hub. Um, I think that's a very good thing to do for them. Um, if you look at the, the a map of the world, they're so um, strategically located in terms of their hub aspirations. A couple of hours from India, for example, a tourist destination for Indians, a lot of Indian business going, uh, going to Dubai. Uh, Dubai trying to set itself up as a sort of staging post between Australia and Europe, for example, as well. Um, it's a very, very good um, long-term aspiration. They've got great port facilities, so I think they're actually over the long term, they will be fine. Um, Abu Dhabi um, rolling in cash, uh, trying to diversify, which I think is a good thing. So we've got uh, trying to set themselves up in terms of an educational, uh, better educational facilities, in terms of uh, medical facilities. Obviously, they're getting art, uh, the Louvre, so global, uh, globally known art brands to move there as well. Um, what I'd like to see in the UAE, though, is more attempt to, uh, to build up the skills level of the local population, of the Emirati population. And this, I think, it will be the difference between um, achieving, uh, the, I suppose, the quality of growth that, that the UAE can achieve. Got lots of oil, so it can grow very fast. But to really improve the quality of this growth, I think the skills set of the, of the local workforce needs to be um, upgraded. I'd like to announce the winner of trivia question number two. India's defense spending rarely attracts investors' attention. Which American company is selling the country $2.1 billion worth of maritime patrol aircraft? And Duane uh, answered correctly. It's Boeing, and he receives the 2011 Economist Wall calendar. Congratulations, Duane. You know, one country that I was reading about recently was Mozambique, and it surprised me because it was one of the poorest countries in the world not too long ago, and um, uh, it was suggested as a, really uh, an emerging country. Do, do you agree with that assessment? 
Well, uh, Mozambique's trajectory has been um, very, very interesting indeed, and I suppose it sort of fits in with the uh, the broader Africa story, in a sense, uh, which is related to uh, to China. Uh, I think uh, just taking Mozambique as, a, as as an example, but sort of spreading it out over the rest of Africa. Um, you know, Africa as a whole is seen by a lot of our clients, um, and within that, Mozambique would would be there um, as an opportunity. Uh, population, as, as we've noted before, is, is young. Uh, they've got a lot of commodities. Uh, China, as we mentioned, um, is very, very interested in, in Africa, investing like mad in Africa, uh, trying to gain influence there as well. Uh, so the, you know, one, the hope is that um, Africa broadly, uh, that its time has now come, uh, partly because external in interest is, is so great in the continent, uh, but again, like, like with Brazil, as we were talking earlier, it's really up to the governments in all, all the countries, uh, not just Mozambique, but all the countries, uh, to invest their new wealth, their commodities wealth, in upgrading the skills levels of their workforces, uh, trying to get into higher value-added manufacturing, really to try and ensure that uh, they're not just driven by commodities, because that really doesn't enrich the population as a whole. Uh, it encourages rent-seeking, a lot of disparities of wealth. So. I'd, I'd be looking for the, the windfalls from this external investment uh, to, be in, to be properly invested in, in retooling the economies. And that will be the difference between uh, whether Mozambique and the Af other African countries can, be, can really turn this decade into their decade or not. We have lots of questions, and unfortunately only about 15 more minutes. And a number of questions have recently come in from uh, a number of our listeners concerning Mexico. And, Robert, we were talking about that before we went on the air here. Doug asks, will the drug wars in Mexico derail Mexico's growth? And David says, what about Mexico? How does its economy stack up against Brazil, GDP, per capita, education, infrastructure, Gina ratio? Basically, David wants to know everything you can tell us in a few minutes about Mexico. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, Mexico, well, it's like, clients say to me, why isn't Mexico as it is a civet? Why is it not a civet? Um, and I say, well, you know, Mexico... As a story, it's a bit for me. It's a bit too 1990s. Um, it was the, the darling of the world in the early 90s. It slipped up, uh, volatile trajectory after that. And now we have this dreadful uh, gang drugs violence um, that, that the government really has it certainly appears to have lost control of, or have very difficulty getting uh, grappling with it, uh, getting control back. Um, for me, um, you know, Mexico is will be a top ten economy as we discussed earlier. It has a huge population, um, aspirational, and, and so on. Uh, a lot of wealth there, actually, as well, of course. But for me, Mexico, Mexico is now so linked in with the, in the U.S. supply chain uh, that its 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 exciting phase as emerging as an emerging market has probably now come to an end. Uh, we're looking at. Uh, Mexico growing you know, relatively well over the next few years, but nothing like it was um, at, it, at its peak. Um, what worries me slightly, of course, is uh, Mex Mexico's management or mismanagement of its oil wealth. Um, it really, its, its productive um, capacity is, is shrinking. Uh, that sort of phase of Mexico's development seems, seems, to be, um, seems to be at an end or certainly ebbing. Uh, so that's, that, that, I think that's slightly worrying from the point of view of, of, of uh, revenue and, and, and growth. So Mexico, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting story. Um, I don't think the drugs uh, issue at the moment, at the level it is at the moment, ghastly though it is, will derail the whole thing. Um, but it's not an exciting story, unfortunately. There are a lot of other exciting emerging markets, far more exciting than Mexico. 
Um, but you know, it, it, it is very much linked into the United States, and its its uh, fortunes will wax and wane, um, as those of the United States do as well. Yeah, I know you've thought a great deal about this issue, uh, innovation. And two weeks ago, China's ambassador to the United States was here and, and talked about the country's next five-year plan and that it would even put more emphasis on, on innovation. And Chris asked a question, are we experiencing a fundamental shift in the United States from a demand side to a supply side economy with China picking up the demand? Um, now, that always does seem to be one of the major issues with China. Will it be able to adapt to become an economy that um, can provide more innovation, say, like the EU or the United States? Um, I would say um, that one should not underestimate the ability of the Chinese to innovate um, and to learn. Uh, I'll just cite you know, the car industry, for example. A couple of years ago, three, four years ago, getting a Chinese car it, it was like driving a coffin on wheels, potential coffin. You have a crash, you end up completely squashed flat because it was the, the safety was, was rubbish and uh, the design was rubbish and so on. And now, I mean, you know, there is, they're, they're fine. The Chinese cars are fine. The speed with which they have learnt how to build uh, what is actually quite a complicated manufactured product has been really quite breathtaking. Um, they're being very active in, in, in environmental technology. Uh, and I think um, there are lots of other areas that we will see them um, increasingly taking uh, a big role. Uh, they are um, investing largely. We talked about Africa earlier, of course. Uh, we are at the EIU expecting China to be investing about $100 billion a year um, in foreign direct investment. So they're going to be buying a lot of expertise um, in from the West as well, learning from that and, and then innovating uh, on top of that as well. Um, this, this is, uh, as I said, China is the story. And uh, they've got deep pockets and they're aggressive uh, and they are very capable of learning um, very quickly. That needn't be a, a threat. I think it you know, can be a very good thing for the world. Um, but I do think it's something that uh, Western companies should, uh, should take very careful note of because, uh, in my view, with this shift from the, emerge, the developed world to the emerging world uh, happening, um, that is going to mean that the competitive landscape of, of, of the developed world companies completely changes. You're going to get highly innovative companies coming out of China India, of course, very already innovative, uh, Brazil, Russia, uh, and they're going to be competing um, in very aggressively with uh, developed world companies that have previously only had to compete with other developed world uh, companies. So I think it's going to be brand new experience for many uh, of the world's corporates uh, going forward. But do watch Chinese innovation. I think it's going to be very exciting over the next few years. Well, as we do grand prize number three, um, I want you to hold that thought, Robert, and, and, and give us in a minute... Um, your thoughts about how Western companies should position themselves then with the challenges that they're facing that you just said. We did save the best trivia prize for last, and this is the latest EIU business newsletter on China for business executives, and it's valued at over $120. So be the first one to answer this question correctly. Just seven years after receiving the largest IMF bailout on record, $41 billion, which of these countries now has a $12 billion trade surplus and is one of the largest economies? Is it Australia, Brazil, or Cambodia? And be the first one and receive grand prize uh, latest EIU business newsletter on China. So, Robert, how, how should companies position themselves? I think that uh, certainly those based uh, within the United States, I think, um, in a sense, the previous question sort of uh, alluded to this. 
Uh, I think the U.S. needs to uh, move up the value chain. Uh, be really and has a phenomenal um, reputation for innovation, for creating the likes of Apple, Microsoft, Google. You know the list is is pretty endless. I think there's nowhere really quite like the United States uh, for, for just generating uh, these kinds of companies. Uh, but the, I think absolutely, you know, education reform uh, to produce uh, workers that are capable of dealing with the knowledge economy. Um, the United States cannot compete with China. In manufacturing, uh, I think that that that's a given. But it can compete, uh, and U.S. companies can compete in terms of moving up the value chain. So, I would love to see um, emphasis on education reform. I'd love to see a kind of relentless focus on increasing the value added um, of exports uh, from the United States. I also think that U.S. companies, and this applies to Europe and and Japan as well, need to be very very um, agile. Uh, because of the competition from the uh, from the emerging market companies, don't forget these emerging market companies are used to dealing in a very volatile environment. Indian companies, you know, from crashing uh, balance of payments crisis in the early 90s to massive growth to you know all sorts of issues they've got to deal with. They're very these companies are battle hardened, uh, and the and the developed world companies will have to be. Um, very uh, nimble and flexible to uh, to deal uh, with this onslaught. Um, I also think companies have to be will have to treat these emerging markets where they really have to succeed. If a lot of them are going to be um, with us in, I suppose, survive over the long term, they have to treat the emerging market countries as markets in their own right. Uh, so the end, perhaps, of a home office, so headquarters in Dallas or Washington or London, dictating policy to the emerging world, uh, to their to their subsidiaries in the emerging world. I think those days perhaps have gone as well. So that's one way of thinking about this: is the world with no centre. Uh, so the world is now a far more difficult and flexible and mobile place. Uh, exciting in my view, and lots of opportunities uh, to be generated. Uh, but I think. Um, Great emphasis needs to be put on 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 uh, upskilling the workforce in the U.S., increasing value added in exports, as I said, in, in, and in industry more generally, um, and also in retooling corporate strategy to to be more flexible uh, and more nimble uh, to deal with uh, with all these challenges. And, and perhaps a change in some of our immigration laws, as, as far as our visas, and uh, uh, more focus on education. Uh, well, I mean, the U.S. Has, has traditionally been one of the most generous of uh, of, uh, of of countries with, with with regard to immigration, and that's obviously been a, a tremendous strength uh, of, of the United States. So over the you know over, over the past uh, over the past decades, um, I, I see that as a strength, and I, I would hope it hope it would continue. Um, but uh, more specifically, uh, with the education system, to really get to grips with the, with the problems there. Uh, the U.S., of course, is not the only country with this problem. I think we have the same in the United Kingdom. Uh, you frequently have uh, companies that complain that the work that the um, here that the uh, students that are turned out of schools that they really aren't fit to work uh, in you know in, in a high-value-added environment. So they have to be retrained and retrained and retrained. So this is a common problem throughout the uh, throughout the developed world. I think. And I want to congratulate Atul, who will be receiving the latest EIU Business Newsletter on China. The correct answer is Brazil. Brazil, just seven years after receiving the largest IMF bailout on record, $41 billion, uh, now has a $12 billion trade surplus. We have just a few more minutes, and Brian asked if you could focus on and tell us what are your favorite sectors for, the e for EM growth? Well, I think one of the, the things to watch is, is, uh, is in China, and it is uh, 
what's going on in China, which is anything to do with this, I think, uh, urbanization. I think China is shifting, uh, and the reason I'm talking about China is because it is so central, so we'll focus on China for a second. Um, it, China is shifting from being an exporter primarily uh, to being increasingly driven by domestic demand. Uh, and one of the reasons for that, in my view, is you have um, an urbanization uh, process. This is a structural uh, process that's really going to be independent of the vagaries of the global economic climate, um, an urbanization process uh, going on, the like of which the world has simply never seen before. Um, the, the, the numbers are staggering. I think over the next uh, four years, uh, China's cities are going to add the population of Germany. Uh, so 80 million are going to be coming, migrating to the Chinese cities. Um, I think by 2025, uh, you're going to have in China more than 200 cities with more than 1 million people in them. Uh, just think about that for a second. It's a staggering uh, growth in urban, in urban centers in, in China. 200 plus cities. In Europe, we have about 35. Um, phenomenal, uh, phenomenal growth. 100, by 2025, uh, another 170 new uh, mass transit systems. I mean, huge, huge potential there. So interesting sectors for me would be anything to do uh, with Chinese um, urbanization, uh, and that's obviously going to be felt uh, in India as well as India gets underway. Um, it's a, that's a very broad answer, so I'm sorry it's not more specific, but uh, I did want to highlight this because I think it's going to be a feature uh, of the global economy um, over the next few years, something we really can't ignore. I appreciate that. I wish we had time for all the questions that are sitting on my desk, but we did not really talk about the former Soviet Union and the Central Asian Republics, and I wonder if you might just take a minute uh, to, to comment on those, on the investment um, climate there. If, if we're in, and I think we probably are, if we are in a super cycle, what we call a commodities super cycle, uh, and this basically means that commodities prices with, with the, the caveat that you're going to get some volatility, are likely to remain elevated uh, because you have Chinese demand on the one hand, Indian demand on the other hand. If we are in this environment, then that will be good news for um, commodities producers in, um, in Central Asia, for example, Kazakhstan, for example. Uh, that's fantastic news for them. Russia, as, as, as we mentioned, um, is fine as well. Um, Ukraine has uh, great potential in terms of its, uh, of its uh, steel uh, production, of course, although it has been through a lot of problems recently. It's a great grain producer, food producer, and that's going to be very important uh, going forward as well. Uh, so basically, you know, if, if we are in the super cycle uh, and provided commodities prices remain high, then these commodities producers, uh, producers should, be, should be okay. Clearly, all these countries have political issues, corporate governance issues, uh, political volatility, uh, autocratic regimes. I think this is just a fact of life. Um, uh, how seriously investors take these depends on how fast the global economy is growing. When the global economy is growing very fast, people tend to turn a blind eye to these issues. When it's not, they become more, more um, worried about them. Uh, I think it's quite difficult to expect a rapid improvement in terms of investor climate in, in sense of politics. Um, over, over, the, over the short term. Um, in Eastern Europe, uh, it's been really hit very badly by the, uh, by the crisis. 
Uh, Poland uh, did relatively well, but Poland is still growing relatively slowly as well. Uh, it's not an Asian economy, by hasn't got Asian growth rates by any, any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, all, all really are struggling to get traction in, in this new uh, environment where credit obviously is much harder to come by. So uh, a mixed picture there, but uh, if commodities are okay, the commodities producers will of course be uh, doing okay over the next few years. Well, Robert, I want to thank you for giving us such, such an in-depth and, and very valuable overview. Uh, it was really fascinating this morning, and we're very, very grateful to you for, for being with us. And I also want to remind our audience, if you are not already a subscriber, please go today to Economist.com to start your subscription. And, you know, it's really never too early to start your holiday shopping. And also I want to remind our listeners to go to uh, EIU.com forward slash GFS to learn more about the Economist Intelligence Unit. Uh, I really find the forecast, especially the global forecasting service, invaluable. Um, and when you go to uh, dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ, you can sign up for our next program, which will be on November 8th, where we'll be discussing the special report Turkey with John Pete, who is the Europe editor of The Economist. And then our December 17th program will be focusing on the world in 2011 with the publication's editor, Daniel Franklin. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Club Corps. And remember, together The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world. <laughs>